Good evening. Well, tonight we have pizza, we have homemade goodies. Now people will come even if I'm lousy. <laughs> there was some guy there, I don't know what he was saying, but the food, yeah, it was great. First Samuel chapter 20, continuing in First Samuel chapter 20. If you need a copy of the scriptures, there are a few back there on the sideboard. Last week was an interesting time as we ended up with Saul pursuing David to kill him. And as he went up to Ramah, Not only he, but some of the men he sent to get David, to kill David, ended up being overcome by the Spirit of God and prophesying. It allowed David an opportunity to escape, and we talked last week how even though Saul was overwhelmed by the Spirit, we are going to move forward now and see what happened with that. What happens when the, the Spirit of God comes upon you, gives you a revelation of who he is, gives you a, an understanding of, of your life compared to God's life and the reality of those two dynamics, and it was so much that he was actually on the ground? What happens when those kinds of things take place? You would think, and we talked about this a little bit last week, an incident like that would have the repercussions of changing Saul's life. I'm not going to kill David any longer. He had already made a vow that he never would, and he broke that vow to his son Jonathan. But now you would think this would be the thing that would set him and say, okay, I'm not going to do that. Is that the case Well, we're going to find out here in chapter 20. And let's read verses 1 through 4. This is probably one of the most touching accounts of uh, personal friendship and loyalty that there really is in in not only Scripture, just in literature. Um, The fact that Saul followed David to Ramah where Samuel was indicates what state of mind he was in. He didn't care about Samuel's presence there, and no doubt that was alarming to David, um, as well as the fact that, you know, David didn't know that he was coming up there. It was kind of a surprise. So we take those things in note, and we read chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth of Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whenever, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. David comes to Jonathan and cries out, 
what have I done? What have I done that made your dad want to kill me? Now, why is David asking this of Jonathan, do you think? What are some reasons? Okay. He thinks he would have told Jonathan. Any other thoughts of why would David be asking Jonathan, what have I done? Did Jonathan warn David that Saul was coming up to Ramah? We don't see that. We don't see an account of him warning David that, hey, Saul's coming up there and he's going to get you. We saw the men came up twice and then Saul came up. We don't see a warning from Jonathan at this point regarding that specific event. It could be that David is going, okay, why didn't you tell me what's going on? And, and, And we'll see that leading on to... A little bit more later on, one of the verses kind of leans in that direction. But so what's going on here is, again, David is wanting to know, okay, what's going on and why is your dad trying to kill me? Have you ever been in a place where maybe a boss, I mean, I don't I don't know your history. Maybe someone's been trying to kill you. I, I don't know. Hopefully that's not the case with most of you, okay? But whenever someone is against you, you wonder, what did I do? When I was at the conference in Vizcaina, I was talking to a couple who I've known for years. And this couple had been involved with a ministry for, I don't, gosh, probably 15 years. And all of a sudden, they were cut off. And they were let go, and they were treated very harshly. And I remember as I was talking to them, she said to me, she said, Hermano, if I've done something wrong, I just want to know what it is. I don't know what I did wrong. I just wish they would have told me what I've done wrong because I don't know. And there was this feeling of guilt, even though she didn't know if she'd done anything wrong. And I can remember a circumstance in my life when I was dealt with a way that I felt was, you know, not right. I remember thinking, did I do something wrong? And in fact, I can remember talking to someone who knew about the circumstance and I said, did I do something wrong? And just as Jonathan comes here and he says, never, That's not what's happening. I remember this person spoke into my life and said, it wasn't you. But in that circumstance, when someone is out to get you, you wonder, is it me? Did I say something? Did I insult them? Did I treat them? Was it how I conducted myself? What did I do that caused this reaction? Now, my circumstance was mild compared to David's. And so as my friends who I was talking about, theirs was nothing near. No one was trying to kill them. But still there is this place of wondering what's going on. I'm not putting the dots together. And that's because sometimes they just don't fit. Sometimes there is no reason that makes sense. 
there should be a reason. What did I do to know it's his jealousy, it's his pride, and it's not making sense. It's just because he wants to. It's just because he feels threatened. It's just because, and, and many times that's how it is in life. You get fired. Why did I get fired? The boss maybe felt threatened by you. You were going to take their position. Did I do anything? No, you didn't do anything wrong. They just felt threatened. And life happens like this. And here David is, one step between him and death, literally. How is he going to conduct himself now that he's in this position where he is on the verge of being killed if he encounters Saul, what's going to happen? What's interesting here, too, is that David, even though this event happened where Saul was prophesying, he still fled and still did not trust Saul, which I think is interesting. You know, you think, well, he prophesied. Everything's good now, right? Saul prophesied. He's with the prophets. The Spirit of God came on him. He's, surely he's going to have a change of heart. And unfortunately, we talked about this last week. That's not always the case. God overwhelmed Saul, gave an opportunity for David to escape, but God did not change Saul's mind or heart. That still is in Saul's possession. And so, verse 5 Continue. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Here he wants to find out what Saul really wants to do. And as he's asking him, he sets up this plan, how he's going to go out and, you know, be gone because he can't show up in his presence because what if he does want to kill him? And so he makes this plan, well, I'll do this and then you can say that. But before he goes on in verse 8, he says, but for you, show kindness to your servant. For you've brought him into a covenant. Remember, Jonathan and he had made this vow together. And he says, if I'm guilty, just kill me yourself. And this is why we have the tendency to believe that when he asked earlier in the first verse, what have I done? He's wondering, Jonathan, are you a part of this? A little bit paranoid. What's that saying? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And so we see that kind of taking place with David. I mean, his life is on the line and everything is suspect. 
And so he's, listen, if, if I've done something wrong, tell me yourself. Why hand me over to your dad? Just take care of it now. Don't let this go on any longer. And Jonathan says, if I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And so Jonathan says, no, I'm, I'm still on your side. I'm still with you. And so verse 8, it seems to imply that David was insecure about his friendship with Jonathan, which is interesting to me because it isn't like, were you talking about me? It's like, were you going to kill me? <laughs> are, are, are you pl- plotting to kill me? This isn't like, why didn't you come to my party? <laughs> this is more serious than that. This is actually wanting to know. But he still comes before him and pleads to him. And this covenant that he's made with Jonathan, he's holding to it. You and me, we are agreement. We are together. Remember that Jonathan had given David his sword, his cloak. He had basically said to David, I I will serve you, even though he was the king's son. And remember, at, at this time, the way kingdoms were run, they didn't vote who would next be king. Who would next be king was the son of who was already king. It was a very family-oriented thing. Many churches are the same way today. You know, it'll just go handed down to someone in the family. It's just one of those things. And so it was supposed to be Jonathan who would be king, but Jonathan had already kind of said, hey, I see God's anointing on you. He loved David more than he loved himself, whereas he loved himself, it says. And so here he said, saying, no, if I had known anything, I would have told you. This covenant is there. And so David is saying, well, then who is going to tell me? If now you don't even know when your dad is plotting to kill me, how am I going to know what's going on? And so Jonathan is going to say, well, let's go out in the field. We're going to talk privately out in this field, and we're going to make a plan. In these verses, are there any things that stand out to you? Any questions you have when David tells Jonathan of his plan or that he asks, inquires, are you going to kill me? Just do it now. David's response. Any things that stand out? Yes, Lola. Remember last week we talked about how you're, it's okay. No, no, it was a good question. We talked about uh, how your behavior will affect your relationship with those who are close to you. In other words, Saul's behavior towards David, his rebellion against God essentially actually started to destroy his relationship with his son. And we see the furtherance of that here, and we'll see it again later on in this chapter. And so we start to see that, yeah, his loyalty towards his dad has now been compromised not only because of his friendship with David, but because this is the right thing to do. I, I don't care if you're king. You can't just go kill an innocent man who's done nothing wrong to you. That's wrong. And what did Saul say? He said no. no, he said yes. 
He said, yes, and they wouldn't do it. They said, yes, I'll kill you because I want to make a point, and they wouldn't do it. And so we see problems with the guy, definitely. Any other thoughts on these? Yes. Yeah, it was definitely done in secret. Jonathan, I don't know how he found out where he was. Yeah, when he fled from there, he went to Jonathan and asked. So he probably did it secretly wherever Jonathan, he knew Jonathan was at. He could have been out of, you know, a small village somewhere. I mean, they had, remember, I mean, these, the way they lived then, there, there were not as many structures as there were probably a lot of people still living out of tents. And so a village might be some tents and a couple of buildings, but a lot of people were still nomadic in their living. It was just really now starting to become a, a civilization that had established place and boundaries. And we're going to see that walls later are going to be built and the kingdom is going to be developing around all these things or the walls are going to help support these places. And so there was a lot of room to wander, but there would be a, a place a town and then there'd be another place in a town. That's why Bethlehem's over here and Ramah's over here and they would travel to these different places. So David knew where Jonathan was, went to him. Well, he's definitely making a plan as we're going to read to see and find out about that seclusion and talking, but um, I don't know. It doesn't appear that Jonathan was as big a deal as Saul was, and so he seems to come and go as he pleases, you know, and that. Good question. Any other thoughts? No? Yeah, there is reason not to trust Saul. He's kind of going crazy here as we see that evil spirit would come upon him and he would just react. Um, no one wants to ask about David asking Jonathan to lie? Okay, we'll, we'll ignore that then. You guys didn't think that way. Okay, just something to bring up. He asked him to. Uh, did he? We'll find out. Verse 12, let, let's see the plan. This is how they're going to work things out. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, he, he wants him to know this is true, and I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. I, I love the way that's word, that I will surely sound out my father. It's kind of like radar or sonar. You know, I'm going to set a ping out and find out what's there. I mean, I'm going to ding, ding. And so he's going to find out. He's going to sound out his father and, and see what's happening inside of him. He's going to resonate those things out. By this time after tomorrow, if he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan then had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. 
a lot of interesting things happening here. What stands out to you guys? Let me ask you first. What, what, in reading these verses, he's going to lie to his dad. We'll find out a little bit more if it actually happens, but it's heading that way. So he's going to betray his dad, basically. He's trying to kill David. Definitely, that's something that's happening. And again, that's a result of Saul's behavior. Saul has caused this division with his son because of what he's done. And our behavior, if we have improper behavior, it will always affect the people who are closest to us. Always. What else jumps out at you in these verses? Well, he's trying to see and find out what's going on, but we'll see. Lola? Well, again, it goes back to that, your house, my house, the house, you know, of Saul. Now Jonathan's supposed to be king, but if David's king, then it's going to be the house of David and his descendants. And he's saying, if you're going to be in this place, then I want your descendants to treat my descendants okay. And that's what he's talking about in the latter part here. Don't ever cut off the kindness from my family in verse 15. If you become king, remember this oath that we have with each other, which David did. David did show kindness to Jonathan and his household as long as they lived. He kept his part of the bargain. And so, yeah, that's definitely an interesting part that's showing that there is the implication of this family kind of click that's going, the Hatfields and the McCoys kind of a thing that's taking place here. I mean, it happened with the individual tribes as well, but even more with families. It's an amazing thing how families can support each other even when they really shouldn't. You know, family becomes more important. Blood is thicker than water kind of a thing. You know, it's all about the family. Well, what if the family is wrong? Shouldn't you take a stand for what is right over what is wrong? No, you always support the family. Really? Should you? I can see how, yeah, you want to be there for your family and help your family and support your family. There is an obligation to family. That's inherent. That's part of what we are as family. But what happens when the family crosses the line and does what's wrong? What should your loyalty be? And basically what Jonathan and David are saying here, our loyalty is going to be stronger than that of just our family. In other words, we're not going to try and just keep our family alive. We're going to support each other in this oath that we have with one another because we believe it's right which is a powerful thing that's taking place, especially at this time when family was everything. And so they're really showing that this oath and this agreement is a powerful thing with, that they have with one another. And it's showing that their relationship with one another is a strong one, that they really do care about each other. What about verse 13? May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Anyone wonder what that means? Because, I mean, what is, is God with Saul? As he was, right? As he was. What do you think this means? May God be with you as he was with my father. What are the implications of that verse? Who placed Saul into this place of kingship? 
It was the Lord. Right? The Lord chose him. This has a lot of implication as the Lord chose my father, he has chosen you. May he get you to be to the place where my father now is. Real interesting understanding. Because then right from there he goes on to basically hold this oath to David, saying, hey, let your family take care of my family. So it's as if Jonathan is saying, I know that one day you are going to be king. And may you be king just as God appointed my father to be king. And when that does happen, take care of my family. And so he's implying here that when you become king, remember this oath that we have together and be kind to my descendants, just as I am kind to you at this point and showing you mercy. So a lot of, a lot of things happening here that are basically uncovering what's going to take place between these two families. In verse 18, let's move forward. Then Jonathan said to David, here's the plan. Okay. Then Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon feast. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow toward evening, go to the place where you hid when the trouble began and wait by the stone Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy to, and say, go find the arrows. If I say to him, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Bring them here. Then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about that matter you and I discussed, remember the Lord is witness between you and me forever. And so he makes an agreement. This is what's going to happen. I want you to hide. When I go to the feast, you're going to be missed because your seat's empty. And so if everything's good with my dad, I'll go out and I'll shoot this target and I'll tell the boy, hey, the, the arrows are over here near us, basically. And then you know it's safe. You can be near. But if I shoot the arrows far, then you know you need to flee, that the Lord has told you to go. And this is how we're going to know. And the Lord witnessed between you and me. Do you realize how important a time this is in David's life? This is going to determine the years of his life, what happens in this event. And so he is in this place of waiting. Depending on where you shoot the arrows and what you say, I'm either going to have a home and be able to come back to what I've known, or else I am going to be banished and hunted down by Saul until who knows when and what happens. He's going to be in this place. His life hangs on the balance of this jealous, prideful man. And so when they're going to leave, it's going to go wondering what will take place in my future. Have you ever been in one of those places wondering what will happen? Maybe it's before a judge who has the ability to sentence you to pay a fine or to do time. 
Maybe it's with a doctor who has the test results of whether it's cancer or benign. And your life is there wondering, what will happen when I hear this news? That's where David's at. There is anxiety. There is tension. And it's all based on this man, Saul, who's out of his mind with jealousy and pride. That's where he's at. So he's going to go in the next few days. He's waiting to hear the results. What's going to happen to my life? That's where he's at. And so imagine the tension that is on him wondering, what will I do? How do you plan for what you don't know? He can't. He can't. So he's stuck here. And so the the truth of what's going to happen, verse 24. So David hid in the field. And when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan. And Abner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonial unclean. Surely he is unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your sight, let me get away to see my brothers. That is why he has not come to the king's table. So he did lie. Now I've seen people try and say, well, he really skated around the truth because he did. No, he lied. Okay. There's no way about it. He, he lied on behalf of David. And we talked about that a little bit last week too. deal with it. God doesn't say it was wrong. It doesn't say it was right. He just says it was. And that's how it is. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know? Yeah, you're not my kid. Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you. Now, this is saying it really nicely. There are some translations that'll say, and to the nakedness of your mother. Here's what he's saying. Okay, you can hold your ears if you want to. I'll I'll make it nice as I can. Men are going to say of you that your mother was a prostitute and that you are illegitimate and that you have no rightful or legitimate right to the throne, that you have no royal blood in your veins because you are so contemptible. That's a nice way of saying what's saying. Your mother is a harlot. You are no son of mine. You are a bastard. That's putting it nicely. Okay? But I just want you to know that the, the feelings that are taking place here. Okay, this is emotional. This is very heated. This isn't, well, it'll, it'll get worse. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth... Here we go back to this clan thing, David, the son of Jesse. Neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. 
Okay, I'm calling you out. I know that you're in cahoots with this guy. Don't you understand? You're illegitimate. And he blasts him and he says, if he lives, then there's going to be nothing for you. He will have you put to death. He doesn't know about the oath that they made, but this is why they made the oath. This is the kind of tension that they're living in. And so if you go allow him to live, there will be nothing for you. Bring him to me. He must die. Verse 32, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Now, doesn't that seem rational? Doesn't that seem to make sense to us? Why should he die? What has he done? Seems to make sense. Jonathan asked his father, verse 33, but Saul hurled a spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Now I know you really want to kill him. You know, when you are angry, when your life is overwhelmed really with any sin, whether it be anger or something else, that will overflow onto those around you, even those you love. So you might be angry about this person who has done wrong to you. And when you start picking up spears to throw at that person who you feel has wronged you, it won't be long before those spears start to flow a little too freely. And pretty soon they start hitting innocent people. That your actions will spill over to those that you didn't intend to hurt. It will happen. Because when you are out of control, you don't control the effects of the things that you do. And pretty soon what was meant for just this situation has now spilled over and has hurt a whole lot of people. And here is Saul's own son now in the way of his violence because of his anger and his jealousy about David. And we need to recognize that when we are out of control, it doesn't matter how much we try and reason it in our heads, that that will affect the people around us, even the ones we aren't intending to hurt. It will. And it did. And so Saul is out of control and he even tries to kill his own son, which You think about it, it just doesn't make sense. Don't you realize, he says to his son, that if the son of Jesse is on the throne, you will have no life. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to throw a spear at you. Take away your life. Wait, wait, you were just trying to get me to be the throne and on the throne, and now you're trying to kill me. I'll never be on the throne if I'm dead. It doesn't make sense, but you see, nothing made sense here because Saul wasn't about reason. It was about what he wanted. He wanted David dead. And what he wanted was stronger than his reason, and it overpowered his actions to the point where it started to destroy his relationship with those around him, those who actually loved him. 
Any thoughts on this verse or these verses? Crazy stuff. Yes. It was very harsh. I mean, it's very harsh. What he said is very... It, it's Again, it's out of anger and it's derogatory towards Jonathan. But again, now it's spilling over to his own wife, which makes you wonder what kind of relationship was that like. Definitely only caring about attacking him. It doesn't care about anything else. He just wants to hurt him. It's amazing. I mean, when you see that, I've unfortunately been a part of relationships that have fallen apart or that are falling apart. And when you start to hear the conversation that goes back and forth between these people, it's like, oh my gosh, who would ever say something like that to someone who they supposedly loved? And it's unbelievable. And it's just that. I just want to hurt you, and I'll say whatever I think will hurt you the most, and that's this. And it's like, oh, my gosh, the things that are said, it's awful. Yeah, that, oh, truth has nothing to do with... Yeah, and it just shows the wickedness that's there within them. And, you know, again, that's what we can do as well if we don't have control. Now, here's the thing. I, I got to share this because I'm thinking it. Uh, I guess I don't have to, but I want to. Um, Saul was responsible for his lack of control. It's not God's fault that Saul's out of control. God did things to try and make Saul aware, even stop Saul, but Saul is responsible for his own actions. You guys ever hear the, the phrase, but there, there but for the grace of God go I, something like that? That's bothering me right now, and here's why. If it's certain circumstances that are beyond our control, you know, losing a job, getting cancer, by all means, there but by the grace of God go I. But when I see something like this, Saul, there but by the grace of God go I, are you telling me that it's up to God whether you lose your temper and blow off the handle or not? It's God's fault if you do? See someone who has an affair, oh, there but by the grace of God go I. Really? It's up to the grace of God that you stay faithful to your husband or wife? That's up to the grace of God. There's no responsibility on you. It's just so if you don't become faithful or if you don't stay faithful, it's God's fault. Because that's kind of what we're saying. Where is the responsibility? There but by the grace of God go I. No. That's Saul's fault. God was graceful to him, gracious to him. Saul made a choice. There but by the grace of God go I. I understand God's grace in our lives. I experience it all the time, daily. But in a circumstance like this, this is a decision and a choice that Saul is making. And we have the choice to respond. And it's not so much, well, it's up to God's grace whether I make this decision or not. No, it's up to your choice. God is already gracious. Are you going to respond to that gracious or are you going to be like Saul? See what I'm saying? 
I'm not putting down the grace of God. I depend on it every day. Okay, I'm not making light of the grace of God and his goodness and forgiveness and its mercy that draws us back to him. But this isn't how that phrase would apply in my mind. It, to me, it's kind of putting blame in some places on God that I don't think is right. Well, so there but by the grace of God go I, I guess... God's grace wasn't with Saul. See what I'm saying? That's kind of what you're saying. I know I've stirred up some things here. Because we like that saying. But is it true? I think that's a great, great point. When Jesus says, you know, pray this way, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, what, what is he saying? He's saying, God, keep me from my own weaknesses. And I I can appreciate that. Keep me from places where my weakness will overpower me to do what is wrong. I I can appreciate that, but who is initiating that? It's the person asking God to do that for him. Which I, I think, again, God puts this incredible potential into our care of what we're going to do. And we want our freedom, but we don't want the responsibilities that it brings at times. And so instead of owning, I am responsible for this, oh God, help me to make the right decisions, which is God leads not in temptation, you know, we can ignore that responsibility and then give in to whatever we want to do and then say, well, God knows, kind of a thing, you know, where, again, just some things to think about, okay? I don't have all the answers. I just spouting out a few things that I, I think are interesting that I've been thinking about. It's Again, it's like that thing, well, you know, um, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, because Saul was jealous and full of pride, and he did this. And sometimes that's the reason. It's not because God was, you see, There was a time where Samuel went up to Saul and said, now the kingdom is taken from you because you chose your way rather than God. Remember when he went and sacrificed and and wasn't supposed to take any animals or any prisoners, and he did because he wanted the approval from the men more than God. And Samuel went up to Saul and said, now has God taken this kingdom from you and given it to another. That means before that time, it was his But because of what he did, now it's taken away. That's the responsibility we have to own. And everything happens for a reason. Sometimes this is our way of making us feel better about the wrong things that we've done. Now, even when we do the wrong things, God is able to work all things for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is always working. What's the will of God? It depends. What did you do? Because now God's will is going to work for the good, those who love him, depending on what's happened. You know, and my mind is too small to, to comprehend all the decisions that God makes and remakes depending on our freedom and choices and the things that we do. But I don't think God is puppeteering everybody. I don't think God was with Saul, I'm going to make you do this. 
It's just not in his character the way we see scripture. He didn't do that with Pharaoh. I'm going to make you not resist. No, Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart. And then God said, okay, that's your position. Now I'll use it. And now I'm going to take this and work it for my purposes. Did the same thing with Jonah. He didn't force Jonah to not go to Nineveh. He just made the waves. He just brought the big fish. Okay, he just worked these things out, but he never made him do what he wanted to do. Even when we saw last time where the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he prophesied, he did not make him change his mind. He just overwhelmed him so that David could get away because that was his desire. He worked for David's benefit without taking away the freedom that Saul had to decide how he was going to live. Yeah, he intervened in situations, and he does time and time again. But Saul is making a decision here, and that bad decision is spreading, and it's starting to run rampant, and now it's trying to kill his own son. Again, we just see him out of control as he hurls the spear at him. Well, I thought I'd go somewhere else. Um, so we did. Uh, Jonathan tried, but the heart of Saul is clearly again revealed. In verse 35, in the morning, Jonathan went out to the field. And again, here is the test. David is waiting. Wanting, David doesn't know anything that's going on. David now is going to find out that his life is severely affected by this man. And it's just not right but it's what's going to happen. I'll talk about that in a little bit. In the morning, Jonathan went out to the field for his meeting with David. He had a small boy with him. He said to the boy, run and find the arrows I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? Then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. The boy picked up the arrows and returned to his master. The boy knew nothing about All this, only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapon to the boy and said, go carry them back to town. Now that was what their agreement was. David is hiding behind the rock. He's waiting to hear. Jonathan shoots the arrows and then he tells them, go run out, go far, go away. And then he sends the boy away. So now David knows I have to run for my life. It's not safe. And that was the plan. Verse 41 and 42 actually wasn't part of their original plan, and I think it's very touching. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace. For we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. Ah, crazy. Why is my life affected by this madman? Why is my life affected by this person who fired me? Why is my life affected by this person who acted this way unjustly for me? God, it is not fair. And David is going to spend years fleeing in the wilderness, running for his life like an 
just a person who's not an outlaw. What do you call it? A what? Fugitive. That's the word, a fugitive. He's a fugitive, and he's done nothing wrong. It's just not fair. Oh, God, why? Have you ever been there, or are you there? Are you there saying, it's not fair that my life would be like this because of what that person has done to me? If you're there, know that you're not alone. There have been many people in that situation, and David is here now. But God is going to work in the situation for David is good. And God always does. Work for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purposes. God is at work. And even though it is going to cost David years, those aren't years that aren't worth something. Those are years of value or will be of value in David's life. Maybe he can't see them in the middle of this, but they will show up. And we need to be able to see that, that even though David was treated unjustly, unjustly, even though David did nothing wrong, is going to have to bear in his own life for years the consequences because of this crazy man, Saul, that God has not abandoned him and is working within him. And he's going to be responsible to carry that past this time of difficulty. And this reaction, when David gets up, who bows down? The person who's greater or the person who's less? The person who's less, right? It's not a trick question. The person who is under someone is the one who bows. David is bowing to Jonathan, a sign that he recognizes Jonathan is given him his life. He is surrendering himself to Jonathan. He's bowing down three times, and then he gets up and they kiss each other the way they do in the Middle East still to this day. And they show this time they wept, but David wept the most. Why did David weep the most? You'd weep the most too if you were about to lose everything and run and be a fugitive. The one who weeps the most is the one who is hurt the most. Okay? It's no secret. The one who weeps the most is the one who is hurt. David is hurt the most. So he weeps the most. And so it's telling us that. But David again submits to Jonathan, recognizes what Jonathan's done, and then Jonathan tells him, go in peace. In other words, my family, as far as I'm concerned, will not harm you. I'm not the one bringing harm to you. Go in peace. Remember the covenant. Our descendants, they will carry on the agreement that we've had with each other. And then he goes away. It's just a, a touching. This is one of those moments. This is a movie moment. You know, This is something that's just picturesque, just vivid in my mind of how this took place. And the emotion that is there is just sweeping, sweeping this time that takes place. And so David left, and Jonathan went back to town. And David is now a fugitive and is running for his life. And things get real interesting as Saul is going to start pursuing David. David was going to be king of Israel and Judah. Yes, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they are separate. They weren't together. There was the Israel was separate from Judah, and they weren't never they were never kingdoms together until David came into power and then brought them together. Yeah. Any thoughts on these last verses? It is because their friendship carried on even past their life to their descendants. You know, when they had the power, they showed mercy to you know their own clan. Yes. Exactly, and Jonathan is putting himself at tremendous risk. I mean, his dad just tried to kill him, and now he's basically going to be seen with David. The whole idea was not to be seen together, to make this covert so that David could flee and and escape, but, you know, they just couldn't. You know, after he sent the boy away, and he just, they waited for this time where they could say goodbye because they were so close to each other. And so it it is a touching and emotional time. Isn't that credible? Isn't the scripture just powerful? Man, these stories are just heart-wrenching and, and filled with just incredible things. All right, well, that's it then. Let's close and let's eat. Uh, let, let's pray. Father, as we go through these passages that are so filled with emotion, Lord, we, we can taste what it's like because we've experienced it in different ways and in different senses. We know what it's like to be treated unjustly, to be accused wrongly. We, we know what it's like to be at the mercy of someone else who is not doing what is right. Lord, we, we know what it's like to have friendships that are important to us and to lose friends who are close to us. And there are so many emotions that take place that we understand. And Lord, we see your hand at work in all these areas so majestically, so powerfully, so sovereignly, yet so, Lord, unintrusively. It's incredible. God, you are awesome. And how you orchestrate things. And Lord, it is perplexing why you allow things. And yet it is revealing. And Lord, the importance of of all that takes place here and in our lives cannot be minimized. Lord, we so desire our freedom, but we so shrink away from responsibility. And Lord, those two things are connected so closely together. And until we recognize that, Lord, we limit ourselves and the good we could do. And we are blind to the hurt we can do. Lord, may we recognize in this story that we've read and and in our own lives how it shows up the importance of these truths as they unfold here and as they unfold in our lives. May we always recognize you are with us and your grace is constantly manifested in our lives at the same time, Lord. May we also recognize the responsibility that we hold when we hold this incredible truth and this love that you've given us. 
Thank you again for this time, Lord. Bless, I pray, everyone here in Jesus' name. Amen.